if you're opening your Bibles with me again to Ephesians chapter 1, this was not intentional on my part. I was working on three or four things at once trying to, to find the Lord's message for this morning. It ended up being we'll just pick up where we left off in the Bible class this morning. Let me uh, pass along to you the, the greetings from the folks in, in Ashland. They all send their greetings and love to you, especially Brother Eric Floyd. He is uh, I'm, one of the reasons I'm so honored to be here. His love for you and um, his very high um, opinion of you all makes me uh, very honored to be in your midst. And he, he promised he would preside for the service this morning and take care of the service as long as I promised to pass along his, his love and, and affection uh, to you all. And I'm also uh, honored to be here in place of, of your pastor. Uh, I have known... Kevin since he was a boy and I can uh, tell you he's just he is one of the very finest men that I know and much more importantly God's gifted him he's gifted him to be a good preacher and a good and, and faithful pastor and I know God has has sent him here for your blessing and your benefit as well as God's glory and I'm very thankful and uh, honored to to uh, that he would ask me to to come and fill in. I can tell you this, uh, Kevin was, was preaching this morning, but a big part of his heart is right here. He's uh, thinking about y'all, wanting to make sure that y'all were fed well, taken care of well, and when a man uh, invites you to, to preach in his stead, and he's trusting uh, you to, to me to preach to, that's an honor. That's a big honor, and I, I do not take it lightly. I'm very, very thankful to be here. I've titled the message this morning, How Does God Save a Sinner? Now, man in his fleshly dead mind has come up with a lot of crazy ways to answer that question, haven't they? But, you know, if we want to find out how God saves a sinner, I think it would be a good idea to find out what God says about the subject. If anybody knows how God saves a sinner, I believe it's God, don't you? And I think we ought to look into God's Word to find the answer to that question. It's a very important question, a question that applies to every one of us here this morning, from the youngest to the oldest. And I don't want to uh, give you just an academic answer to this question, how does God save a sinner? This is the good news of the gospel. It's life. And it's exciting. I mean, I'm not uh, advocating throwing songbooks and, and that kind of thing, but now this is exciting. Almighty God has chosen to save sinners, and he's told us how he, how he does it. And you can get a sense of that when you read Ephesians chapter 1. You can just see in your mind's eye Paul writing this passage under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In his heart, he's just bursting out. With, with praise and worship and excitement. This is how God saves sinners. And I want us to, to look at this question and the answer in such a way that we'll be thrilled about the answer. If the Holy Spirit will be pleased to show us Christ from it, we will be thrilled to see this answer. How does God save sinners? In the shortest possible terms, I can tell you this, God saves sinners by His grace. Salvation is all of grace and none by our works. 
And Paul tells us exactly here in, in Ephesians chapter 1 what kind of grace it takes to save a sinner. And I'm going to give you eight of them, and I promise I'll be brief. The number one is this. God saves sinners by sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, salvation, it all began in eternity, before the creation, when God the Father blessed his people with every spiritual blessing that there is to be had. He blessed his people with that, for he created anything. And the Father just gave, freely gave all those blessings to his people, freely, without them ever having to do anything to receive them. That's grace. That's sovereign grace. God just gave it to whom he would. We see that very early on in the, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Nobody else did. Eight souls were in that ark. That sovereign grace. God picked Noah. Noah was just as sinful as everybody else, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's God being gracious to whom he will be gracious. He chose Noah. And this thing of salvation is all of grace. God does not bless his people because they deserve it. God blessed his people because Christ deserves it, because Christ earned it as a man made under the law. Paul here tells us that the Father has blessed us in Christ, in Christ, not because of what his elect would earn by their religious works and, and, and their morality. The Father gave his people what the Lord Jesus Christ would earn, as their representative, as a man made under the law. He gave them what they don't deserve. Now, that's grace. And this is sovereign grace. The, the Father was gracious to his people just because he decided to do it, just because he would, because it's his character to do it. And Paul stresses this throughout this passage. Look at the end of, of verse 5. All this happened according to the good pleasure of his will. Look at the end of verse 9. This was according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. And verse 11, at the end of the verse, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now that is sovereign grace. This thing of grace is all God's idea, if I can use that word, and it's all of God's doing. God's not gracious to anybody because he owes it to them. No, if he owes it to us, it's wages, isn't it? Not grace. And sovereign grace, grace that God gives just because he will, is the only kind of grace that can ever save a sinner. Because we can never do anything to earn salvation. We can't do anything to get God to save us. If we could do something to get God to save us, that would make God the debtor, and that can't be. That can't be. We don't want God to give us what we deserve. Because what do we deserve? The wages of sin is death. We don't want that. But God gives his people grace just because he decided to do it. And that grace leads to salvation of his people where his people are saved to the uttermost. You see, sovereign grace is what makes salvation sure. Because it's all God's will. 
And his will always comes to pass. And you might wonder, well, how sure is salvation? How sure is this thing? Let me tell you. So sure, Paul talks about it in the past tense. He talked about it in the past tense 2,000 years before you and I were ever born. That's how sure salvation is. See what he says here? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us. That's past tense. This thing is already done. The salvation of God's people is so sure it's already done. Now God's given these blessings to his people in Christ and what God does is forever. That means God won't take it back. Our sin will never make him take it back. He knew our sin before the creation of the world better than we know it right now. He put it away by the blood of his son so our sin won't make him take it back. And nobody else can overpower God and make him take it back either. Sovereign grace. Now that's thrilling. That's good doctrine. But that's thrilling, isn't it? Right here's the second thing. God saves sinners by electing grace. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, people can try to deny God's electing love and God's electing grace all they want to. But God's election of a people is as clear as the noonday sun in Scripture. I mean, it, it cannot be denied. Paul says here, God chose us. Now, I don't need anything else to tell me. God chose a people. God elected a people. It, just, it can't be more clear. And if he chose a people, it had to be in electing grace. Electing grace. And God's people love electing grace because that's the kind of grace I need. Because you know who electing grace is for? Sinners. God, you know, people say, well, God looked down through the telescope of time and he saw who would choose him, so he chose them. God saw who would be good, so he, he, he chose them. Well, that's God taking credit for what man would already do. I forget where it is in the Psalms, but David said God looked down. He did look down upon all the sons of men. You know what he saw? They're all dead in Zen. He did look down through the telescope of time, and you know what he saw? There'd be none good, no, not one. So if God's going to save a people, he's going to have to choose them. God chose to save sinners. He didn't choose people because they were good and they were holy and when they were without blame, he chose them that they would be holy and without blame before him in love. God chose to save dead, vile, wretched, guilty, hell-deserving sinners. Not because they were holy, but that he'd make them holy that Christ would make his people holy and without blame before him in love by his obedience and his sacrifice for them. Now that's God's electing grace. And if a sinner would be saved, we know this. If God has saved you, you know this. The only way I could have been chosen, the only way I could be saved is by God's electing grace because I know this. I never would have chosen God unless he chose me first. Oh, I do choose him now. I do. If I can say it this way, I wouldn't change God's way of salvation even if I could. I 
choose this. I choose to be saved by grace rather than by my own merit. Because I see it's the only way that salvation can be sure. I never would have. But the only reason I do that, the only reason, is God chose me first. He revealed his son to me and in me. And you know this. If, you, if God has saved you, you know this. He chose me first. And you know what he said about to his people? I will never, no, never forsake you. I'll never cast you out. Never. Oh. If our character didn't make us holy, our character can't make us unholy. Now that's exciting. That's exciting. God will never cast away the people that he foreknew, that he chose unto salvation. That makes it sure, doesn't it? Thirdly, God saves his people by predestinating grace. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, people have a, a lot of um, misunderstanding about this thing of predestination. And you can clear up all the misunderstanding if you understand this. Predestination in Scripture always has to do with the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. God didn't predestinate some people to heaven and some people to hell. No, sir. God didn't have to predestinate anybody to hell. All he had to do, send us to hell, leave us alone. God predestinated a people to be made just like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He predetermined that he would make a sinful people to be as perfect, to be as holy, to be as righteous as his own son, to make them the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's predestination. God predetermined that's what he would do for his people. Well, nothing can stop God's will. His will is always done. And this is what God predetermined before he created anything, before time began. And nothing that happens in time can make God change his mind or make his will not, not happen. God predetermined to make a people just like his son. Then he created Adam and put Adam in the garden. Now you think about what's happened between then and now. Adam fell. It didn't change God's purpose, did it? Then eventually you and me came along. And our own sin, our own rebellion, our own deadness in sin didn't change it either. You know why? Because God never changes his mind. He never switches to plan B because plan A is perfect. And all God is doing in time is doing what he predetermined before to be done. Tomorrow morning, I don't, do, I don't guess people read newspapers anymore, but if you can imagine back to the time where we all read newspapers, you open up the morning newspaper and you read about stuff. You know all that is? It's the unfolding of God's purpose that he purposed in himself before time began. That's all it is. And everything that God is doing in creation is all being done for this one purpose, to glorify his son in the redemption of his people. God's working every event of history together to bring his people to Christ, that we would believe him and trust him and be found in him. I'm telling you, God had to decide to do that. 
if God left it up to us to decide our destination, where would we be? We'd be in hell. That's exactly right, because that's, that's the only thing that our carnal mind could do. We'd be exactly like our father, Adam. But if the father predetermined that he would make us just like his son, he's going to do it, and we shall be saved. I don't know even what to call it in our day, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a softness, I mean... I don't know what it is, but I mean, buddy, you can, people just, now you, you can't cross my will. I got to have my way whenever I want it. And if you say anything about it, you're evil, not me. And that's bled over in, into religion. It's, well, you know, uh, God can't cross my will. This, this thing's up to me. I got to make the decision. It's up to me whether or not I'm going to do this. You better hope it's not. When God saves his people, brother, he crosses their will. My dad used to say that when God saves his people, he saves them against their will with their full consent because he gives them a new want to. He gives them a new nature and a new want to. But all that had to be predetermined by God the Father. And that's what he's done for his people, and his will shall be done. Now, that's good doctrine, but, brother, that's exciting, isn't it? Isn't that exciting? Fourthly, God saves sinners by adopting grace. He says in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. The Father, in his grace, predestinated to adopt his children. Now, our father Adam made his race to be a bunch of orphans. We were born dead in trespasses and sin. Adam orphaned us. He left us alone, and I'm telling you, he left us the worst bunch of ragamuffins you've ever seen. We are cast out by our father Adam into the open field to the loathing of our persons, just like Ezekiel's baby in chapter 16. But God came down where we were. He came to that field where we were cast out to the loathing of our persons, and he says, thy time is the time of love. And he chose Sinners to be his children. Now of all the people the Father could have chosen, he chose you and me, people like you and me, to be his children. I don't know if there are orphanages anymore, but can you imagine in the old time orphanages, small children are in there, and a young couple comes in. The father, the man, husband. He he's he's tall. He's he's got on a, a nice suit. His hair's you know just so. He's, he's got a ring on. His the the woman, the wife. She's in a real pretty dress and, and high heels. She's got a necklace on, pearls, and these little ragamuffin children. And they think, oh, I'd like them to take me home. I like the end. I like them to be my mom and dad. Take me out of this place. And they all line up. They can pick any of them. And they find the smallest one, the dirtiest one. Maybe everybody wants the smallest one. They, they choose the biggest one. He, he, he's been in there a while. He, he's kind of he's hardened to the situation, to the, uh, the orphanage. 
he's kind of acting like I don't care if they choose me. Really, he wants them to, but he knows there's no way they're going to choose. They're, they're going to choose the little one. The little ones are cute. I'm not cute anymore. He's dirty. He's a rebellious teenager. Not all teenagers are rebellious, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. Teenagers are, you know, who they are. The one that's least likely for that fine-looking couple to pick is the one they pick. And they take him home, and they say, you're, you're my son. They take those old rags off of him. They, they, they put the finest clothes on him. They put good shoes on his feet. They, they feed him good food. And he thinks of all the little ones in that orphanage. They chose me. That's the way a believer goes through this life. Of all the people the father could have chose, he chose me. And he blesses all those children. You know how he blesses them? He makes every last one of them just like his son. He makes them all joint heirs with Christ. All of God's children have an inheritance, and they don't get part of the whole. When my wife and I die, whatever little bit's left is going to go to our two daughters. They each get half. They each get a part of the whole. Every believer gets the whole. Every believer gets it all. What do they get? Everything that Christ gets. <laughs> Joint heirs with him. In verse 11, he says, In whom also, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We get everything that Christ gets. Now, if sinners going to be saved, we must be saved in adopting grace. God's got to take us from Adam's family and adopt us into his family. And if he doesn't, we're going to perish in our sin. If he doesn't, we're going to receive everything that Adam's got which is death. But if the Father adopts a people, makes them his children, we're joint heirs with the Son of God. Now, I'm telling you, that, that's good doctrine, isn't it? But if we preach that and we think about that in such a way that it doesn't thrill our souls, we're missing something. Here's the fifth thing. Here's the reason God saves all of his people. It's his glorifying grace to glorify himself. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, God saves his people by grace. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's amazing grace. When God saves sinners, he saves the worst of sinners. Every one of them will tell you, I'm the chief of sinners. So somebody couldn't be worse than me. You know why God does it that way? To make his grace even more amazing to us. God saved me? Oh, that's amazing. And God didn't save a people so we could brag on ourselves. If we're the chief of sinners, why are we trying to brag on ourselves? We had nothing to brag about. God saves his people in such a way that we can only brag on God. We can only brag on our Lord Jesus Christ. We can only glory in him. We can only glory in what he accomplished on the cross. We can only brag about God's grace. We can't brag about our works because we don't have any. 
really, if, if truth be told, what we ought to be doing is trying to cover up our works and not talk about our works. The believer loves to brag on God's grace. And because we're still in the flesh, this is a trap we're, we're prone to fall into. But if we do, God will bring his people out of it. The believer doesn't say, oh, God saved him? Huh, I can't believe it. God saved him? You know what a believer says? God saved me? That's the most amazing thing ever was. I'm so thankful. Oh, just give me the chance to brag on God our Savior. God gave me what I do not deserve. And God's, God's people, they love to talk about God's grace. And everybody's not as vocal as others, but every believer likes to think about God's grace. Where would I be if it wasn't for God's grace? Mm -mm -mm. It's hard to tell, but I can rest, I can, you can rest assured it wouldn't be here. Oh, my. And in heaven, that thing that you like to think upon now, God's grace, and the flesh and our sin and our deadness and the world gets in the way. But in heaven, we'll be able to do that perfectly and eternally and we'll never get tired of it. We're going to spend eternity singing the praises of our God and his grace. And if you get tired of hearing somebody brag on God's grace now, you're not going to like it in heaven either. But if you enjoy it now, you just wait. <laughs> oh, if you think this is good, wait till we're in his presence without this body and nature of sin. Right here's the sixth thing. God saves sinners by redeeming grace. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. Now, God saves his people by grace. But you know, at the same time, God saves his people legally. God saves his people by grace, but he also does it in justice. This thing of justice got to be dealt with. Our sin has put a price on our head, and God's law demands justice, demands it. If God's going to save us, our sin must be paid in full. God's holy character demands it. God's grace does not mean that God is kind and he's gracious and he's so loving he just can't punish us for our sins. That's not legal. That's not legal. When my wife and I were raising our girls, we were strict disciplinarians. I mean, we were strict, but they didn't get, you know, discipline every single time. They probably deserved it, you know. And uh, our youngest daughter right now is, is pregnant with our first grandchild. And I can tell you this right now. Frank the grandfather is not going to be like Frank the father. <laughs> I'm going to be like, well, now he didn't mean it. He can, you know, can't you just let that slide, you know. That, that's a grandfather's love, right? You told me there yesterday you get away with stuff when your mom and dad are gone, your grandparents are you. That's why. That's why I'll be. That's not God. 
Don't think God's this grandfatherly figure up there with a real long beard just looking for ways he can overlook our sin. No, sir, he's holy. God is just. He must be holy and just in everything that he does. And in a miracle that only God could do, he found a way to be both gracious and just. When God forgives sin, he makes it so it's right for him to do it. When God forgives the sin of his people, he makes it right for him to forgive their sin. So that when he forgives their sin, his graciousness, that's glorified. His holiness and his justice are glorified at the very same time. Well, how could God do that? Sin's got to be paid for. We can't pay for our sin. We got nothing to offer God. See what the Father did? He sent his son into this world and made him a man. He made him an embryo in the womb of the virgin. And he was born as a man, not just with flesh and bones like we have, but with a human nature. He was a real man, made under the law just exactly like we are, so that he could be our representative. Adam was our representative because we're just like him. We came from his loins. Well, God can't be our representative, can he? No, he's got a different nature. So he made himself a man to, to be, so he could be the representative of his people. And that man did what you and I could never do. He obeyed God's law perfectly in every jot and every tittle. Indeed, where people could see it, in thought and, and motive, too. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of pretty mean things I've thought about doing and didn't do them. But it was in me. That wasn't even in the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. He perfect. He established a perfect obedience before his Father. That's, that's pretty miraculous. Nobody else ever done it. He's the only man that ever lived to do that. And then, then it got even greater. He willingly was made sin for his people. He took the sin of his people away from them and gave them his obedience. And he went to the cross and he suffered and he died. He endured all of his holy father's unmitigated wrath against sin. And he suffered until the wrath was gone. See, every other sacrifice offered in the Old Testament, the fire burned it up and it was gone. The fire went out because the sacrifice was gone. What, what fueled the sacrifice was gone. The sacrifice of Christ is the only sacrifice that consumed the fire. He suffered until sin was gone. When sin was gone, sin that fueled the fire was gone, God's wrath was gone, and he gave up the ghost and he died. Because sin demands death. He paid the price for his people. That's how he redeemed them. He bought them with his precious blood. And sin, that tells me sin is not just a violation of the rules. Sin is something that's so heinous. It's so vile that the only way a sinner could be redeemed is by the blood of of God himself. That's how vile sin is. And the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood in a sacrifice. He didn't just, you know, cut his arm, let the blood come out. He was tortured. 
And his blood flowed out, his lifeblood flowed out, and he gave up the ghost to pay the price for the sin of his people. Now that sin debt was astronomical, is eternal. We just can't imagine the size of that debt. But he paid the price by the riches of his grace because his blood is perfect to pay the price. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And he put the price away. And here's how I know that the blood of Christ fully redeemed all of God's people. In verse... Oh... In verse 6, that's where it is, in verse 6. Wherein he hath made us accepted. Again, past tense. Christ didn't make his people acceptable. And then they do something like God might accept because they're acceptable. It says accepted. The Father has accepted his people because he accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Now Christ paying a debt he did not owe. A debt he did not rack up for a people who hated him. That's grace for guilty sinners. And that's the kind of grace I need. Now this thing of redeeming grace, that's good doctrine. It's the only way a sinner can be saved. Redemption in the blood. But I'm telling you, this is a thrilling thing. The Son of God paid my sin debt. For me on purpose. With my name on his heart. I'm telling you, that's the most thrilling thing I've ever heard. I can't get over it. Here's the seventh thing. I love this one too. God saves sinners by revealing grace. Verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure with which he hath purposed in himself. Now, salvation by grace, through the sacrifice of Christ, that's such a, a great display of grace, isn't it? But, you know, it's also a great display of wisdom. God found the ransom that allowed him to be just and justifier. He found a ransom, a sacrifice, that enabled him to be just while he justified the ungodly. That can only happen through substitution. Substitution and satisfaction. There's got to be a substitute. But that substitute also has to make satisfaction for our sin, doesn't he? That's the sacrifice of Christ. It's substitution and satisfaction. His sacrifice satisfied the Father. And that salvation is so wise, ignorant dead men could never figure it out. That's why men have made up so many wild ways for somebody to be saved they can never find a way to do both. In all the religions that men have made up, they, they can't do these two things at the same time, substitution and satisfaction. They try one or the other, but never both at the same time. This is the unanswerable mystery as far as man's mind is concerned. How can a man be just with God? How is that possible? Well, if God slaughtered his son for your sin, isn't that wonderful? If God did something so wonderful for you, he's going to let you in on it. 
He's going to tell you he did it. God's not going to do something so wonderful for you to keep it a secret. <laughs> this thing wasn't done in a corner. He's going to make it known to you. And here's how God reveals this to his people. How, how, how do I know that Christ died for me? It's by the gospel. It's by the gospel of Christ. The way we find out what God did for sinners is by the preaching of Christ. And in that preaching, God's going to always reveal that to the hearts of his people. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians two. Or first Corinthians chapter two, excuse me. Chapter two, verse seven. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Nobody could possibly figure out this great story of God's grace. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now that's grace. God, God saves his people by his grace. And in grace, he sends the gospel to them. How did the gospel come to San Diego, California? And how on earth did you hear it? How did this fella from Ashland, Kentucky, end up being your pastor? I mean, you all have lived 15 different places since then. How, how in the world did he end up? God will see to it. And all the places you've been in your life, how in this world did you end up here? How in this world did you end up here in some preacher somewhere and think, wait a minute, that's the truth. God will see to it. God will see to it. Oh, it's grace. It's grace that God would purpose such a thing and that he would send that to us by the preaching of his word. Now, I'm telling you, if a sinner is going to be saved, we must be saved by God's revealing grace. He's got to reveal Christ to our hearts or we'll never see him. We're so blind, we cannot see, believe, love the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a great indictment on the nature of man. John, John, in John chapter 1 somewhere it says, well, let me, let me find it and read, read it to you. Hang on a second. Oh, here it is. Verse 5, John chapter 1. The light shineth in darkness. The Son of God came in the flesh. Here he is. The sun, the light shineth in dark, and the darkness comprehended it not. We're so blind spiritually we can't see the noonday sun. If we're going to see him, if we're going to believe him, if we're going to love him, God's going to have to reveal him to us. Now, you believe Christ? God revealed that to you. We didn't figure it out. God revealed it. Now, that's good doctrine. I'm preaching good doctrine to you, but that's thrilling, isn't it? 
Oh, that's thrilling. I see. I see. I heard the gospel from the time I could understand language. My parents taught me at home. They, they brought me to sit and listen, you, you, this is great. I sat in pews that were wooden seats and wooden backs. I mean, the most uncomfortable places you could think of to make somebody sit. I sat in for, oh. And I thought, yeah, that's true. I mean, I see that. I see that. That's what that's, I mean, I can see that. The gospel is not hard to understand. I was a child, I understood it. I didn't believe it. And one day I saw. And I can't unsee. <laughs> That's God's revealing grace. Is that what God did for you? All right, here's the last thing. God saves sinners by life-giving grace. See, there's a purpose of God, but where there is God's purpose, there's got to be a fulfillment of it. There's got to be an application of it. The blood must be shed, but the blood has to be applied to the doorpost, doesn't it? God saves a sinner. God the Holy Spirit powerfully and irresistibly calls that sinner to come to Christ. And when the Spirit calls, you come running. I try in every message I preach to tell sinners to come to Christ. Look to Christ. And all that means, when I was growing up, and Brother Henry would say, look to Christ, it, it was so frustrating. I, if you tell me where he is, I'll look at him. I, looking to Christ simply means this, trusting. Trust him to be all you need. Look to Christ. A preacher can tell you come to Christ till he's blue in the face and you won't do it. But the moment the Spirit reveals, you know how, you know how he, the Spirit calls sinners to come to Christ? He reveals them to you. And when you see him, you're going to go to him. Oh, the moment you see him, you'll go to him. And no preacher has to bother begging you to come to Christ. If the Spirit will reveal Christ to you, you better get out of the way because that sinner's going to Christ. <laughs> they are. Isn't that why you believe? You believe. Isn't that, isn't that, you believe. You heard Christ preach and the Spirit gave you the faith to see him and now somebody can't keep you away. I tell you, the only reason I have faith is the Holy Spirit gave it and drew me irresistibly to come to Christ. That's the application of God's purpose. He purposed to save his people by his grace through faith. And when the Spirit reveals Christ to your heart, that's the fulfillment of God, application of God's purpose. Look at verse 12. Here's why God did all of this, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Who is it that first trusted in Christ? Was God the Father. In eternity, the Father and the Son entered into a covenant, a promise. They, a covenant means a promise. They, they made a promise. And the covenant of grace said the Father would elect a people unto salvation, and he'd give them to his Son. And his Son promised, Father, I'll redeem those people. I'll make them righteous by my obedience and by my sacrifice for them. And the Father trusted the Son to do what he said he'd do. The Father's the first one to trust him. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ must be trustworthy. 
if the father trusted him, don't you reckon? Well, if he's that trustworthy, I want to trust him too. I want to trust him too. And here's why God's done all of this. So in the end of time, when God's elect by all of creation sees God's elect as saved and justified and righteousness and righteous in Christ, you know what the, the, all of creation is going to say? God is the one to be praised for saving sinners like that. If God saves sinners like that, he's, all of creation will praise him. Only God has the grace and the power to give dead sinners life. Well, that sounds pretty mysterious, doesn't it? How does the Holy Spirit give life and faith to God's elect? How does he operate? It's through the preaching of the gospel. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, if you trust Christ... When did that happen? When did you receive life and faith in Christ? Well, I can tell you, it's when you heard the gospel. Now, it may not have been the first time. It may have been the 10,000th time, like me. But it, if you believe Christ, it was after you heard the gospel. Now, it's not just any preaching. I'm not talking about any just religious talk or religious ceremony. It's when you heard the true gospel of Christ. And never one minute before. Nobody saved who has not heard and believed this gospel, the gospel of Christ. How can you be saved if you don't believe the only, on the only Savior? How can you be saved if you've never heard of the only Savior? Our gospel is the word of truth. And I'm not uh, afraid to say this by any means. Every other message is a lie. It's a lie. This word is the word of truth. So the Spirit arranges it so that you hear the gospel. You hear it. You hear the word of truth. And the Spirit gives you faith to believe. You believe Christ. And he seals you. He seals you kind of like uh, canning. My mother used to always can tomatoes. And she canned those things. And that thing, I don't know how it worked. I didn't, it was magic to me. She did it and the little thing popped and... Is sealed. I mean, that thing could sit there for, in that jar for years, and you open it up, and it's just fresh as can be. It's sealed. The Holy Spirit seals God's people so you can't spoil. He seals you so you can't quit believing on Christ. Well, that's God's purpose. It's application to my heart. How do I know he's going to perfect it? How do I know He's going to bring this thing to, to the end that he promised where I get out of this life and go be with him. How do I know that's going to happen? It's by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, the Holy Spirit is the earnest money. That's the, the down payment. You know, you make a, a down payment on something, and then later on you come by and you, you pay the rest. That's just exactly what God did for his people when he redeemed them. He gave them the earnest of his spirit. Another way to look at this earnest is like an engagement ring. 
young man gets down on one knee and proposes to a, a, a dear girl, and she says yes. And he slides a ring on her finger. That's not this, this the band. That's, that's the wedding ring. He puts a, some sort of a ring, whatever he can afford on her finger, and it's an engagement ring, we call it. She's got that engagement ring. She goes, we've got a young uh, couple at church, and I've been wondering, when's he going to propose to her? When's he going to propose to her? He finally did. And uh, Madison's her name. Madison comes into the church the next time I see her, and first thing, let me see the ring. <gasps> Boy, she's got that ring out, showing that ring. And you know what Madison's doing right now? She's planning a wedding. Now, how does she know there's going to be a wedding? I mean, she, you, you're going you're gonna to plan the, the, this big ceremony, and, and you're going to plan a, a reception and stuff. How do you know that there's going to be a wedding, and this fellow's actually going to marry you? She's got to earnest. That ring is his promise. I'm going to marry you and take you to be my wife. I'm going to love you like I love my own flesh. We're going to be one. Christ, our bridegroom, has given us the earnest. It's his spirit that dwelleth in us. That's the, that's the promise. And brother, there's going to be a wedding. Christ, the bridegroom, is coming. And when he comes, he's going to give his elect the purchase possession. Everything he purposed for them. Everything he purchased for them. And they're going to have it, not by faith but in possession. And there's going to be a wedding feast. Now that's good doctrine. And if you can talk about that and not leave clicking your heels, something's wrong. We're talking about it wrong, aren't we? That's not doctrine. There's going to be a wedding feast. And we're going to spend eternity rejoicing in and basking in the presence of Christ our bridegroom. I can't wait. This young lady I told you about, she's, this, this young man proposed to her, and I think she did right. She's planning a short engagement. He proposed, I want to get married. Now, she's going to have some hoops to jump through, find a place to do it, but she said, I want to get married right now. I said, I'm with you. I want to see the bridegroom right now, don't you? He's coming. He's coming. All right. The Lord bless you. Mm-hmm.